You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. So I get to talk to Sarah Rule, who is one of our country's finest playwrights. Um, she's a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, a Tony Award nominee, and a MacArthur Genius Fellow. Um, her plays include In the Next Room or The Vibrator Play, The Clean House, Stage Kiss, among many, many others. Um, she has a new work of nonfiction. It's called Smile, the Story of a Face. Uh, she's also, uh, she grew up in Wilmette, and she studied at Piven Theater Workshop, and so there's a lot of good Chicago talk. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DS And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Sarah Rule, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You open your new book by writing, quote, 10 years ago, my smile walked off my face and wandered out in the world, end quote. Can you tell our listeners what happened to you to start the pod? Sure. So I had just given birth to twins and it was a high risk pregnancy and miraculously they were born and they were healthy. And then I was breastfeeding them. The lactation consultant was teaching me this hold called the football hold, which is how you hold two babies at one time to breastfeed. Mm -hmm. And the lactation consultant said, your eye looks a little droopy. And I thought, that's kind of rude. <laughs> um, she said, no, look in the mirror. And I looked in the mirror and the left side of my face had fallen down. And I, I had this condition called Bell's palsy, which is the paralysis of the seventh cranial nerve. And most people get better really, you know, fairly quickly within three months. And I just happened to be on a really slow boat back to health. Um, I was in, in the kind of chronic slow boat case of folks. And I mean, you had it for 10 years. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. and you could say I still have it. I mean, it's sort of subjective at this point. You mm -hmm. could say I'm sort of 70% better, something right. like that. Right, right, right. Um, a bunch of, there, there's so many fascinating things in, in the book that I want to touch on. Uh, but uh, you were, um, uh, your doctor prescribed bed rest uh, to you. Um, and then you also talk a bit about this, this uh, rest cure, which was something I think that was, around since Victorian time. <laughs> um, uh, and you write, quote, both the rest cure and the bed rest for pregnant women uh, were Victorian in origin and prescribed largely by men 
for women. So there's there's the sense here that maybe this isn't a, a real treatment. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I don't know if the jury's out yet in yeah. terms of bed rest. I mean, I think it does seem to help some women some of the time. I mean, maybe what's helping some women is not being a difficult work environments. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I think... I think in the pandemic, they found that um, the rate of preterm birth went down a little bit. But um, I think some people argue that they overprescribe bed rest just in terms of living in a litigious society and feeling like the doctors are doing something when when you're in a, you know, a scary situation. So who knows? I mean, in my case, bed rest was helpful in that I had the babies, the babies were healthy, even though I had this crazy condition called cholestasis of the liver where you have this intractable itch and bile is leaking into your bloodstream and it can kill your babies immediately. So I was really, really lucky um, to have these two healthy babies. It's interesting thinking about the the bed rest issue or men telling women to lie down, um, but also this idea of smiling and the book called, is called Smile, which is, you know, there's neuroscience and behavioral science speaks to the idea that smiling is a good thing for you. But then there's also like men are constantly telling women to smile. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's such a complicated territory, right? It really is. There's this notion of the compulsory smile, you know, for women, which I think is kind of toxic. And I was just, I was just listening to um, a poem this morning on a podcast. Um, and I'm going to forget the writer's name, but Maybe I can look it up, but it was it was to do with the smile as mask, and it was written by um, um, an incredible poet from the Harlem Renaissance. Mm. Um, so I think you know smiles do have to do with power and hierarchy. Who gets to tell who to smile? Who we think ought to smile through unpleasant situations? Um, and then on the other hand, there's this feeling that. Smiling itself, the act of smiling can bring a person joy. And that actually, in terms of your own happiness, it probably is not a bad thing to rely on the smile to get you through hard situations. Um, You also talk in the book about that Americans may smile more because we're a nation of of immigrants and don't always share language, which immediately made me think of our work at Second City and certainly the work you studied when you were at Piven around improvisation and Viola Spolin creating so many of these improv games that were in gibberish or silence because the kids didn't share language. And that's very powerful when people find out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, say more. I mean, I grew up on those games. I grew up on Spolin. I grew up on improvisation and, and long form improvisation. So I'm, I'm especially delighted, you know, to be able to talk to you. But say more about invented language and what yeah, that is. I think the, the the realization, and certainly Viola spoke to this, which is like, we communicate with so much more than our words. Yes, uh, yes, yes. So much more. And, and you know, we take a lot of this work into like the business world, uh, which used to be sort of like people kind of questioned it maybe 15 years ago, and now they're asking for it because mm-hmm. they're also recognizing we have the most generations in the workplace forever, and no one knows how to talk to each other. And yeah. then the pandemic just made it even worse because we're yeah. li- living on Zoom. Uh, and so I, I feel like your, uh, your book is so filled with sort of improvisational um, twists and turns where you mm-hmm. have to discover your particular kind of 
curiosity first to find out what's going on and try to fix it while also sort of maintaining the level of resilience to maintain that curiosity. Mm, That's such a beautiful way of putting it. Having to maintain your resilience to maintain your curiosity. I think that's really right. I think when you go through any kind of trauma, your curiosity can really shut down, particularly about what you've experienced and to wonder about it and to wonder about the mind is so much of what makes us feel alive and human. And I think I definitely went through a time that I, I stopped being curious about my Bell's palsy for sure. I wanted to know nothing about it. I wanted to read nothing about it. I didn't want to look in the mirror. I didn't want to acknowledge it was a thing. And I think it was not helpful to me. And and I think in a way, writing the book got me unstuck in in the same way that improvisation can get you unstuck, can get you more limbered up, you know, mentally and emotionally. And of course, with improvisation, your body comes, comes with you as well. Yeah. 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 Um, Oh, so many different things uh, here. I mean, certainly for my, for my sort of grief journey, writing was a thing I did every single day and it, it helped me. I, I, I read a ton of poetry. I listened to a lot of music um, and you're really trying to balance this need to sort of solely grieve with recognizing that you need to re-enter your community of humans. If you're going to not just live, but attempt to thrive because we mm. all should. Mm-hmm. And my friend, Scott Barry Kaufman who's a scientist introduced me to the term and the concept of post-traumatic growth. The mm. idea that, you know, you have the potential in terms of the agency of, 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 of who you are and how you control your emotions to take your difficulties and allow them to improve you. Um, it, it's not easy, but it's, it's something I've seen that other people have had that, that part of that journey as well. I love that introducing the term post-traumatic growth. I think we need that culturally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we, our culture made big strides recognizing PTSD. Um, and now, now, <laughs> I mean, we, we've just been through a pandemic and we're in a mental health epidemic within the pandemic. And I'm so worried for our kids and resilience and growth coming from suffering. I remember my um, 10th, no, ninth grade English teacher, Jane Schwalbach, we read the Odyssey and her mantra was through suffering comes growth. That, that was always what she wanted us to look for in the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And I think without being able to make meaning of our suffering, um, our suffering becomes flattened and impoverished and inexplicable. And suffering is inexplicable. I mean, the suffering you've been through is inexplicable. Mm -hmm. And yet without making inroads into the meaning of it, how do we grow? Because I wouldn't be suffering if I didn't love. Right. And so what's the, the opposite of that is not to have that. And that's Mm -hmm. not a good choice. So Mm -hmm. it's very, I mean, when you, and you've dabbled seemingly with Buddhist thinking, but I mean, Mm -hmm. that's certainly at the heart of sort of so much Buddhist thought is is these two, this duality that is ever existent. And then an interesting, when you think about self, right. Cause they, they, and you talk about this in the book in terms of whether there actually is a self. And this is also fascinating because you're a playwright, which means 
you're sort of in the thick of it until you aren't. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's grossly unfair, uh, but you've chosen it. Uh, and <laughs> for a reason, I imagine you're good. You're quite good at it. Uh, but that's, that's that thing you write in the book, like the show opens and you're done. Like no, mm-hmm. one's, no one's talking to you except when an artistic director wants to yell at you. <laughs> by the way that was bullshit i don't know i don't know what regional theater that was because you didn't bring it up but i i'm desperate to know who that person was cannot say cannot say oh. <laughs> and then literally you you you're you, uh, uh one of your children were in the NICU and you missed some rehearsals the show opens does well and this guy goes off on you and you forget but you forgave him i did i mean Yes, I feel, I feel, um, I, I only included that little segment because I wanted people to know how hard it is to be a breastfeeding mother roaming around regional theater working, but I have no wish to, you know, embarrass the gentleman who, who probably would have been embarrassed himself by the incident. I think it's an important point though, because, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not in any way near done with this conversation in this country about the way women are treated in the workplace and men are treated in the workplace as related to caregiving. Mm-hmm. And, that, that's, and, and we work very closely with a group called Caring Across Generations. We created a whole improvisation for caregivers program. Oh, wow. And yeah, it's really cool. Um, and it's taking all these ideas of ensemble and, and, and uh, especially with, when you're working with people with dementia, yes, and is a very effective tool. And, and yeah. blocking is not a good thing. Like go with them right. on the journey, go with them on the yeah. journey. And I did, I, when my mom got dementia, I, I wrote the book, yes, and, and I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't learn about this stuff till afterwards, but, but, you know, it, we, we're, we're not set up well for what is basically a, a must in America right now, which is both parents have to work. Mm-hmm. In order to, you know, feed and clothe and pay for college and all, mm-hmm. all those things. And yet, I think your husband was given one week of paternity leave. Yeah, one week for twins. No, Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> I mean, I was heartened the other day because I'm I'm rehearsing um uh, this opera, Eurydice at the Met. It's a it's an adaptation of a play I wrote. This become an opera, and I needed a room to do an interview in. And I said to the Met, "Could I just have some little room somewhere?" And they said, "Well, maybe the breastfeeding room." I said, "Oh, great! I'm amazed you even have a breastfeeding room. That's incredible." And then they said, "Well, oh no, no, you can't use it. Someone might might be breastfeeding." I thought. Well, well, God, what's wrong with me? Of course. Why would I use the breastfeeding room for something other than breastfeeding? What am I, the patriarchy? Like, you know, that's for breastfeeding. Um, whereas when I started out, I saw no breastfeeding room in sight at any theater. I, I was shocked to learn that the Met had one. We, yeah, we, I think we have our, had our first one here, um, like 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I, I love that we did that, but it, it, it took a while. I'm curious, is this your first venture into opera? Yes, it is. So we did a, a collaboration with Renee Fleming and mm. Opera Chicago. Uh, and we created a show called the second city guide to opera. Mm. And it was fascinating. I was spending, we spent an entire year, like going to rehearsals, going to shows, interviewing people, just immersing ourselves in this world. And Renee is such a generous human, lovely person who's interested in all this stuff. And I really found a surprising amount of connections between our various universes, but then also 
some of the opposite. So when we, when we would lead the uh, young opera students through improv exercises, mm-hmm. they saw it as therapy because mm-hmm. in their world, it, you, you, you can't get it wrong. And we're right. like, no, no, no. In our world, like you're going to get it wrong. And mm-hmm. we're going to like laugh and celebrate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I do think there's a, there's a virtuosity and precision that opera singers have and a kind of desire to hit their mark. Um, and hit it the same every time that it is at odds with um, an improvisational training. And I do think my having an improvisational training at the Piven Theater Workshop had a big impact on my writing and my sense of being pleased if I didn't know where I was going, hoping I'd make discoveries. And that if I, if I was surprising myself, that would surprise the reader as well. But it didn't make you want to be an actor. You know, I love acting um, if there's no audience. (laughs) (laughs) Which, which unfortunately, build that business model. That would be a new thing. Like in a rehearsal or in a reading of a playwright's friend, you know, friend who's a playwright, I'm always happy to do that. But if there was an audience, no. Uh, Like, I don't know, it was this last summer, Stephen Colbert was in town because one of his kids goes to Northwestern, and my wife was his roommate in college. He was in my first class. Amazing. uh, Of my first cast at Second City. Um, And he did an impersonation because he worked at uh, the vegetarian restaurant in Evanston. I'm forgetting. Blind Faith? Blind Faith. No. His imitation was Burn Piven ordering a vegetarian omelet. Oh, my God. I need to hear that. I I will... (laughs) Can I, I talk to please? Steve and I'll see if I can record it. Oh my God, please. It was just, it was so beautiful because it was just like a vegetarian omelet. It's like, oh, I guess that's given <laughs> booming across yes. everything. And, you know, Joyce, who's still alive. I, yes. I very active, I've been, to, I've been with Joyce of Blind Faith many times. Oh my God. Yeah. We hosted the, um, oh, it was the like 60th anniversary of the Playwrights Theater Club. So it was Ed Asner was here. Wow. Joyce and David Shepard and all these mm-hmm. sort of luminaries of that all bitching each other like like time had not stopped. <laughs> they were still talking about the affairs and like who was sleeping with Barbara Harris and like oh my and, God. And everyone did apparently. It so was, good. <laughs> it was one of my favorite experiences because I'm like, is this just going to be like, are we all going to do the same song and dance like even into our like 80s? I guess we are. Apparently. And apparently none of us slept with enough people in our day. You know, it's not no. going to be as interesting. Well, and certainly, yeah, certainly now. So the other couple of things in, in the book that we sort of shared, which is interesting. Both of our fathers loved Dave Brubeck. Ah. So I got handed down all those albums. I've seen him and I saw him in concert when he was alive many times ah. with his sons in late, later years. Um and, and, and then the other thing is, because um, you have a picture of Allen Ginsberg, who had Bell's palsy, mm-hmm. which I knew, because I did my thesis on the beats, and my dad, um, who was at WGN Radio for years, mm-hmm. interviewed Ginsberg, and I tagged along and got to hang out in a coffee shop talking with him for like three hours. No kidding. Very comfortable with it, with the palsy, didn't like, yeah. just lived in it. Yes. I was so struck by that picture of him with Bell's palsy because his face was completely open and hiding nothing. And it felt really aspirational to me. I mean, I think there's something about having a woman's face and being a poet that is different than having a man's face. Why should it be? I don't know. But I I keep coming back to this notion that with actors too, there's more permission for male actors to do 
with their faces to do things. And there's more of a, um, an ask for women to be with their faces and be looked at and to look beautiful and to be. And I think when I started physical therapy, finally with Bell's palsy, I thought, ah, I need to retrain my muscles to get their use back. It's much more about function Mm -hmm. than it is how you look. Um, but I, but since writing the book, I've, I've run into a couple different actors who've gotten in touch with me. One who said she used to be on camera in LA and then got Bell's palsy that wouldn't go away. And she gave up acting and tried Mm -hmm. another career. And another actress who said the opposite, who said, I got Bell's palsy and God damn it, I wasn't going to stop. And I did Julius Caesar and I was, I forget who she played. And in the audience, someone said, oh my God, you could do the most amazing things with your face, you know, because with Bell's palsy, you can make very odd or unusual facial expressions. Um, So I think it's all fascinating, you know, our, our faces as instruments, our faces as conveyors of emotion, our faces beyond um being static canvases is that what you were getting at when you wrote in the book quote i listened for way too long to the wrong story about my face yes i did i mean i think i saw doctors who were experts early on who told me things like well if you're not better after six months you'll just never recover um and that turned out to be not true in my case and Mm. um I listened to doctors who said, don't even bother trying other modalities like acupuncture or or physical therapy. And that wasn't true either. So I think it, well, I think medical expertise is so, 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 so important right now. You know, I uh, I think there can be cases where with chronic conditions in Western medicine, doctors kind of throw up their hands when they don't know the answer and, um, you can have some curiosity again, going back to curiosity. If you can, if you can have a little bit of curiosity and persistence in the face of all that unknown, sometimes you can find a different answer. It's very navigating the American medical. I, I, I don't even want to call it a system because it's, it's, it's far more chaotic than that. It, it, it was very hard. Um, and there's so many people have stories. So the podcast that posted today with Savala Nolan, she talked, she's a black woman and she, you know, was not treated well when she was pregnant and had all sorts of problems and they didn't believe her pain. And there's so many studies that have shown this and you talk about your experiences. And for us, the, the, you know, Anne and I had already created this caregivers program. So we, we just applied that. But so we were like, how do we build an ensemble with all these different caregivers? And we shared a lot of sort of personal information and we, we made them curious about us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and then, and then we were better at navigating, okay, like who's actually digging in and who's sort of giving a sort of surface sort of response because your journey and a number of different issues that you were dealing with, because not just one, mm-hmm. I mean, you really had, you had some real bad doctors. I did. I, there was a calcate. And, you know, I didn't even go into all the, I mean, I didn't want to go into all my medical problems. Like I stopped short of talking about parasites. Yeah. Which I got shortly after oh, Trump no. became president. Oh, no, that's not in the book. This is almost no, I was like, My editor was like, you know, I think there's enough medical issues. <laughs> Fair. Um, I want to, before we get to the yes and story, one of the things that comes up a fair amount in the book is faith and 
Catholicism or lack of Catholicism. You noted that when Hope was in the NICU, you said, quote, I said a prayer to my Catholic God and I left. I had not said a prayer to a specifically Catholic God in a long time. I'm curious in following up on that, like, was there any sense that that got heard? Was there any sense that that was a, the right thing to do? Or in, are you reflect on it differently now? It's funny how in moments of duress, I rely on the Lord's prayer, you know, on a prayer that's so automatic to me. And that was one of those moments. Hmm. Um, did it work? I don't know. The next morning I got a call saying Hope had a breathing episode in the night. She's been rushed to the NICU. Um, do prayers protect us? I mean, I don't know. I, I was reflecting on prayer a little bit in the book because I've always felt it was vulgar to ask God for an outcome. And when my father had cancer, I always felt like I had to pray for the strength to accept his diagnosis rather than ask for an outcome because who would God be if he then died young? Yeah. So I think a lot of um, my pilgrim's progress from Catholicism to Buddhism has to do with a changing notion of what prayer is. I think one of the things that I lucked out in college, so I, I went first to Ithaca College in New York and then transferred, and I thought I was going to get into Northwestern, and I needed to have a backup school, which was Lake Forest College, which mm-hmm. ended up being a gift for me because my very first class was a religion class, and it was uh, led by an ex-Jesuit monk, uh, Ron Miller, who immediately took me under his wing, and, and you know, I, I had a, a, but I mean, introduced me to Simone Weil, to Thomas mm-hmm. Burton, to like mm-hmm. all, all these sort of Catholic mystics who, mm-hmm. and, and then also introduced me to Martin Buber and, and mm-hmm. the Hasidic yes. tales. Yeah. That stuff is so rich and so wonderful. And mm-hmm. to get it at that point in co- like when I'm sort of fertile in college, mm-hmm. really set a betting, not for me to go back to the church, which I didn't do, but also not to ignore ideas around faith, meaning purpose, the important stuff, just I just didn't need an institution, but I needed the thinkers, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love the Catholic mystics. I would take them any day. If I could have some strange hybrid religion that was full of Tibetan Buddhism and then the wandering Catholic mystic, that would be great for me. And is that how you think about your spiritual life today? It is. I mean, sometimes I think if Thomas Merton hadn't died with that hairdryer accident in the bathtub, um, maybe he would have created a syncretic religion between um, a kind of serious Catholicism, a Catholicism for thinkers and um, and Buddhism, but we don't know because he died of a hair dryer accident. <laughs> it's just, I don't know, I was talking to John Lahr the other day and John was talking about the meaning of the absurd and the absurdism in theater. Mm-hmm. and literature and life. And he said, the absurd is when something changes suddenly with no apparent causality. And I was thinking, you know, like, so Thomas Merton, you know, dying of a hairdryer in a bathtub seems absurd. Or, you know, how do you make sense of that? Or, you know, first, you, you first, your face is fine in one moment. And the second moment it's paralyzed and your face looks absurd. Mm-hmm. Um and there's no apparent explanation except it can be associated with postpartum. Kafka, you know, turning into 
the metamorphosis turning into a cockroach one morning. I mean, often these bodily things don't have a kind of, what's that word for slow shading in Italian, like a chiascuro? Um, That sounds good. Chiascuro. I don't know. I don't speak Italian, but you know, they, they're very sudden and abrupt and you walk, you know, you trip in a crack in a sidewalk, you fall. I, I don't know. I, I think all my life writing plays, I actually understood that and was drawn to absurd situations where suddenly something shifted, some drastic shift transformation happened, which I do think is also the kind of training and improvisation I grew up in, you know, it was less about Aristotelian causality and more about, whoa, now, <laughs> now we're here. Um, it's funny because I go to this Mel Brooks quote, which I might be getting not quite right, but it's it's something along the lines of I, I trip and fall in a hole into tragedy. You trip and fall in a hole. And it's hilarious. Right. Yes. Yes, exactly. I love Mel Brooks. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. One more thing before we ask for your Ann story. I'm, I'm just so curious. So you and I are uh, 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 two Caucasian people who worked in theater for a while. I'm about, probably about 10 years older than you, I think. Um and we've just gone through these last two years. And there's this reckoning, whatever you want to call it, um, that I, I certainly have, to, have forced to pay a lot of attention to and, and probably was beforehand as, as well. One of the things that I have really um, w- was, was striking to me were um, some of the tropes that we live by in, in our work. And, and one of them is, a, is an adage that the show must go on. Um, which upon the reflection of what's happened seems like a form of abuse. Mm. Whereas before it felt like a badge to the club that we were all in and to be like, and I remember like groups here when the theater was going to close down during a snowstorm, we're like, no, we're going to do show, you know? And then we were all like, yeah, show must go on. But I don't think that now, I think it's a, a, it's, it's an adage that kept a lot of people who weren't making that much money on a stage so that someone could make a lot of money. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because we the show must go on. We don't usually think about it in terms of capitalism and labor. We usually think of it more in terms of kind of brio. Yeah. And um, dedication, devotion to the craft in a way. But I, my boss at Yale School of Drama is Terrell McCraney, who is so wonderful, such a wonderful playwright and leader in the American theater. And he's really instituted at Yale School of Drama a a policy with playwrights that the show must not go on. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if the playwright doesn't feel safe or doesn't feel like it ought to go on, then no, the show does not need to go on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think we learned in the pandemic the show does not need to go on. Actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> we oh, all live for a year and a half without it going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I applaud the, the sort of athleticism of it, the show must go on. Um, also, as someone who's dealt with a lot of chronic illness, I myself feel constantly like I might not be at the show tomorrow night. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm not an actor, so I can do that. And I think maybe we don't always need to push through in that way. And maybe we don't need six hour work weeks and maybe we don't need 10 out of 12s. Yeah. Um, and maybe um, the art would be better with a little bit more calm and rest. Yeah. We, this last, the, so we've been, we were the first equity theater open in Chicago 
And we just opened a, a new show on our main stage and the cast before the process were like, Hey, cause normally that's a Tuesday through Sunday gig. And they were like, could we get Tuesdays off? You know? And, and so we switched stuff around. We moved show times to like seven and 10. We had a show Thursday that actually ended up selling just fine. So they had two days off, which, you know, and, and, and it'll be interesting to see when someone like Colbert comes back, whether that, whether that's going to upset them or whether they're going to be like, ah, I, I get it. Cause I mean, you know, there's that problem too, which the generations that all came before that didn't get this, but, but we didn't ask for it because we didn't Mm. know that we could. Uh Uh Yeah. And I feel the same about medical training. Why must, why must residents work sleepless? Why, who is that? It doesn't seem seem like a great recipe for peak performance. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think we all need to come back more kind and more tender. And I, and I fear, I feel a kind of restless, harried quality in the coming back to theater in New York. I don't know if it's that way in Chicago, but um, I really miss Chicago theater and I miss the care and community between companies and the ensemble nature of it. And and I I feel that it's a, um, maybe it's just grass is always greener, but it feels a little bit. Oh no, it's it's different. I mean, we have this, call every single week, which is the leaders at Steppenwolf and Chicago Shakes and Goodman and us. And it's like, this is like family. I mean, like, mm-hmm. and, and that's how we, we've all worked in each other's spaces and we've all, yeah. you know, Sheldon Patinkin was leading ensemble workshops for that first Steppenwolf group. And so, mm-hmm. so there's a great sense of, of camaraderie and support and, and, and yes. And quite frankly, that I just think is at the, and there was just a TTW just aired this, um, new documentary on Viola. So, mm. Oh, uh, good. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's, so if you go to the TTW website, it's, they did a great job. And I don't say this because my wife is all over it, although she is, she leads a class through a bunch of the exercises and talks about her work, but Aretha is on there and, and other folks and Bob Balaban and Alan Alda. Bob and it, Balaban. It's like, yeah. And, I mean, it's that, but it's interesting, right? The people I just mentioned are all people who are like kind people from the theater. And in part, I think they got some of that because they were rooted in Viola's work. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to talk to Alan Alden next week, actually. Oh, great. He's yeah. He's been on the pod. I, I, I love the work he's been doing at Stony Brook and, you know, just yeah. an amazing individual. Okay. We always end the podcast by asking for a yes and story. Um, so do you have something for us? I think I do. Um so when I was writing the book, it finally occurred to, to me to reach out to this writer, Jonathan Kalb, who I knew had had unrecovered Bell's palsy because he'd written about it in the New Yorker. And, you know, I knew another playwright who knew him. I'd read his story, but it never occurred to me to reach out. But I sort of used the fact that I was writing about it as an excuse for human connection. <laughs> uh, so we had lunch um, at this kind of tea radiance tea shop that has dumplings and things. And it was like seeing my own face, seeing what was unrecovered about his Bell's palsy, seeing the difficulty we both had eating a certain kind of soup dumpling that would sort of explode in your mouth and seeing the way we both turned away from each other when we laughed because we were trying to hide yeah. um, the asymmetry. And not only did it feel like a yes and it felt like um, mirror transformation, you know, this idea that I felt my face mirrored by him. I felt for the first time I had compassion for my face because I had so much compassion for his face. So much I felt 
I wanted him to look at me and not turn away when he laughed. Mm -hmm. And that I think really changed me. And he wrote to me, he, he sent me his book after the lunch and put in the fly leaf, a quote from 12th night, methinks tis time again to smile. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's exactly a yes and story, but you oh, know, yeah. was, I think also I asked, I asked Jonathan, do you think it's worse for a woman uh, than for a man to have Bell's palsy? I was intrigued by this question. And I, I think he might've said even yes. And <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yes. And furthermore, you know, women smile through shitty things all the time and men can appear kind of stolid and serious. And I was actually surprised that he said it because he had talked about the painfulness of going through what he went through with such vividness in the story he wrote about in the New Yorker. So I was surprised that he thought his suffering would be worse somehow if he were looked at as a woman in the culture. But anyway, that lunch was full of yes ands. And I think just the fact of it was a kind of yes and a kind of reaching across the table. So that story makes me think of a, um, we we do a lot of work with the behavioral science community. And a lot of this podcast is interviewing, you know, academics and scientists about the intersection of their work and creativity and innovation. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, when I, we were sort of teaching, uh, the scholars at university of Chicago improv games and a lot of them, which require you to be what we call others focused. Um, mm-hmm. they brought up this literature and it's, uh, I think William Walls, who's a, a professor in Texas and the idea it's called self-verification theory. And the idea is that a lot of us think we want to be seen as our prettiest selves and our, our best selves. And actually Walls shows that that's not true. What we want oh to be gosh. seen is. We want to be seen as we see ourselves. Wow. So if I see myself wow. as clumsy and I need you to see me as clumsy so you don't throw me a ball, but I'm not going to tell you that. And I might not have even processed that myself. That is profound. That's yeah. really profound. I think also because it can be alienating when you have Bell's palsy, when your friends are like, you look totally the same, you look fine. Like, I don't even see it. I mean, even though. That's yeah, the polite you're not thing seeing, to then do. you're not seeing it. Then you're not literally <laughs> then you're not like, I must be crazy because when it's I like people say, it. I don't see color. Like right, right, right. There's, there's nothing worse than saying that because yeah. then you're denying it, the reality. Yeah. Self-verification. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I love that. We don't story. want to be perfect. We just want to be seen. We want to be seen. And that, and it also explains to, I say this, it also explains why a lot of people get into bad relationships. If, if they're coming in, seeing themselves as not worthy of having a good relationship, that itch gets scratched when someone's a little like crappy to you. Yeah. That's, that's the dark side of that. Yeah. Um, The book is called smile. The story of a face. Sarah rule. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Oh, thank you. It's such an honor and delight and makes me want to come home to Chicago immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Come on home. Thank you. Getting the yes. And is produced by the second city, second city works and WGN radio. It's also produced by Elif Garris with help by Mike Farinacchio and Colleen Fahey. The music that you hear that intros and outros the program is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you want to get more information on The Second City, you can reach us at www.secondcityworks.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.